Hi there, I'm Mark Icero, and this is the Highlighter Podcast. Hey everyone, hello and welcome to the Highlighter Podcast number 40. I'm very excited about today's episode. It focuses on reading and reading instruction. Specifically, what is the best way to teach our children how to read? As you probably know, this has been a passion of mine for a long time, and I know that you care about it a whole lot too. And so that's why I'm very excited to let you know that I got the great opportunity to speak with Emily Hanford about this very important topic. Um, Emily is producer and education reporter at American Public Media. In September, she produced a radio documentary called Hard Words, Why Aren't Our Kids Being Taught to Read, which was featured in the highlighter number 162. And even more recently, she wrote a piece in the New York Times entitled, Why Are We Still Teaching Reading the Wrong Way? In both pieces, Emily looks at why so many educators are not following settled research that says that phonics is the best way to teach our kids to read. I hope you really enjoy our conversation. Thank you so much for your piece. It's definitely hit a chord um, among my colleagues. Uh, We're talking about it a whole lot, and so I'm just really happy to be able to talk to you about it a little bit and ask you some questions. Well, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for the interest. I know that you've tackled um, some pretty big topics in education in your career, and so why did you choose reading? (laughs) Good question. Well, you know, I have been doing long-form documentary work about education for over 10 years now and one piece kind of leads to another so um, unlike a person who's doing sort of daily or weekly news which I used to do but I've never been an education reporter who was doing daily or weekly news so I'm not you know up on everything all the time I'm usually focusing on sort of two or three topics at once and digging into them really deeply and usually get about a year to focus on two or three um, topics and then produce a documentary. So um, I didn't know very much about reading. (laughs) I cover education at all levels. So I've done stuff in early education, K through 12, higher ed, adult education. So I haven't been a specialist uh, in K through 12 or how kids learn to read. So I didn't really know anything about it. And what happened is that going back several years now, I did a piece back in, I guess it was 2016, about remedial education in college and why so many students are ending up in quote-unquote remedial classes when they get to college. And along, as I was doing that reporting, I met a number of students with learning disabilities, in particular dyslexia. Many of them had not had those learning disabilities identified or sort of treated in any way when they were younger. Um, They kind of discovered them when they were in college. And so I got really interested in reading disabilities and what happens to students who go to college and they haven't gotten help for their learning disabilities. And that led me into learning a whole lot more about dyslexia, which I knew nothing about. So then I made a documentary last year, which is about dyslexia and how difficult it is for many kids with dyslexia to get identified in public school and to get the help that they need. 
And while I was reporting on dyslexia, it was really the moms, mostly moms, um, of kids with dyslexia who've become very organized um, in this country. There, there are a lot of dyslexia advocates out there who are fighting for their kids to get identified and get services, but who also have identified that a big root cause here is that many schools don't know very much about reading and that we have a core reading instruction issue. They were the ones that really schooled me on that. I had no idea. <laughs> so it's a little embarrassing to be a education reporter for 10 years and to not know about that. I mean, I started reporting in education in 2008, so it was kind of the reading wars were kind of done and I knew about them and I'd read about them, but I'd never really reported on them. So it really was these <coughs> moms who pointed it out to me and that got me um, going on reporting on reading this in this last year and the documentary that came out a month ago. Yeah, it's, it is interesting because I think, especially at the secondary level, there's a lot of educators who want to believe that, that children with dyslexia um, are not that common and that's sort of they're on the side. And it seems like where you started is that actually um, more than half of our young people are not reading on grade level. Yeah, well, let me just say a couple of things about dyslexia. So dyslexia is on a continuum. I mean, there's a wide variety of sort of severity when kids have dyslexia. And there's actually a quite um, interesting and passionate debate among scientists uh, about exactly what dyslexia is and how you tell if someone quote unquote has dyslexia. And part of the reason for that is because at the end of the day, there's no difference between someone who quote unquote has dyslexia and someone who can't read who struggles with decoding. So, so the, the, um, the treatment is the same. <laughs> if you are a person who is struggling with learning to decode words, learning to take apart that code uh, that is our, our language, you need the same thing, no matter whether you have a diagnosable learning disability or not. You need explicit systematic phonics instruction. And what the moms of the kids with dyslexia taught me is kids with dyslexia, kids who can't read, don't need anything different than every other kid. <laughs> Everyone needs that kind of uh, understanding of how sounds and speech sounds relate to this code, this written code that we have. That is the way that reading gets unlocked. Some people learn that really quickly and easily. It doesn't happen naturally for anybody. For some kids, it's really quick and easy, and it might seem like they never really had any instruction or no one had to teach them. But you're much, many more kids need instruction, and some kids need really intensive instruction. And those kids who need lots and lots and lots of instruction, those kids are quote unquote dyslexic. So even when you look at the parents of kids with dyslexia who are fighting for their kids to get services, what a lot of them have really come to understand is that their kids just need more of what all kids need. And that's how I started um, reporting on this topic of reading instruction generally. Because what happened is I started reading the science on reading. And it's an incredible vast amount of research that has been done on how our brains learn to read. 
And once I started talking to people about this research and reading it, it's just astonishing how much of it there is. I think there's a line in the documentary that's basically, there's nothing else sort of in learning that we've studied so much. Like we know a lot. There's a lot of things we don't know in education. Quote unquote, science doesn't have an answer for a whole lot of things. Uh, in, in education. And it, and it certainly doesn't have like an, a neat and easy answer with how you teach every kid how to read. But we know so much. I mean, scientists have figured out so much about how reading works. And once you start reading that research and talking to the people who do that research, and then you start looking at how reading is taught typically in schools and what teachers are taught about their science, that science in their teacher preparation programs, there's just a wide and shocking gulf between the two. And that's where my reporting began. <laughs> yeah, it was fascinating to read that you went to Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, as well as to Mississippi, and to sort of follow the research and to talk to people. And I was really struck by how bold your conclusion was. I mean, I would agree with you as well as with the research, but um, more than ever before, I felt like there was a very strong and bold conclusion that phonics obviously is settled research, um, brain research and reading research, and also that anybody sort of who still believes in balanced literacy or whole language, you know, is just um, trying to deny what, what is true. I'd like to know more about, did you, did you decide in the, at any point where, to what degree you wanted to be bold with your conclusion? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that I had a particular tone that I was on purpose trying to strike with this. I mean, I, I didn't set out to produce a piece that was going to be hard or strong in any particular way. Instead, I spent really what's now about two years reading about and talking to people about this vast scientific literature and how people learn to read and what that means about how they should be taught. And then also reading about and reporting on how schools typically teach reading and, and what teachers are taught about reading in their teacher preparation programs. And like I said before, I was just sort of shocked and alarmed at the huge divide between research and practice. So I didn't, I, I guess I was going for a tone which just matched what I had discovered. <laughs> and I think, I, I think part of the problem we have with reading in this country, why it is such a stubborn problem to fix is because it has somehow been okay to say, well, you can do it this way or that way or that way. It's not like there's one curriculum or one approach or one anything that's going to be the answer for how you teach kids to read. But there is a fundamental understanding that it's not a natural process, that exposing kids to books is not the way that they learn how to read that there's explicit systematic instruction that needs to take place to make sure that all kids get the code. There, those things are so well documented in the research. So it is not okay when there is that much evidence to support all of that for people to say they don't buy it. And I, I think a lot of people I think a lot of people just don't know, and I think many teachers don't know this because they haven't been taught it. I think the place where there is really no excuse is at the teacher preparation level, the people who are preparing teachers. I mean, I really think there is no excuse not to know this stuff, but I, I do, my reporting has shown me that 
I think a lot of people in teacher preparation don't know it. I mean, it's not that they're denying it. Some are denying it. Some know it and deny it. But I think a lot of them don't, don't know it. But it's not okay to not know. Like, we've known this for decades, many, many decades. And reading is so crucial. It is, there's no excuse for not knowing this science and not teaching it to teachers. Yeah, I appreciate it. I mean, I listened to the documentary as well as read the article. And then in prep for this, I reread and re-listened. And on my first reading and listening, I did feel like the, um, the conclusions were bold and also strong. But then when I read it the second time, I really saw uh, how fairly you sort of presented the issue. But ultimately, um, you did want to make sure that there wasn't necessarily unnecessary wiggle room to again resist or to deal with or to remain, I guess, ignorant. And I just wanted to appreciate that. Um, specifically, also, you brought out climate change deniers uh, more than once, hmm. which is obviously interesting because the stereotypical liberal educator, at least in the Bay Area, would say, especially for climate change, science, science, science. And yet I really thought that you brilliantly brought up people who may like science in one way, but maybe not like science in reading. Um, were you um, aware of the specific moves that you made to bring up climate change in your piece? Climate change was brought up by many others to me. So in fact, I mean, in the piece you hear other people actually bring it up. Um, right. And I was, um, resistant, I guess, for a little while on that one. Uh, it, it took a little thinking to, to think about whether or not we were going to put that in there. Um, and I think my editors questioned it a lot. Um, and I feel, I feel solid that that was the right analogy um, because I think it's very apt. I mean, I think it really is the same situation. Um, there's a huge amount of evidence <laughs> that about climate change. A uh, huge amount of science has been for decades, and it's it's being ignored. Um, and I think the same thing is true with reading. And I think, I mean, you bring up politics here. I, um, you know, I'm a reporter. I am one of the reasons I'm a reporter is sort of in my like down deep into my <laughs> soul and in my bones, I'm not a partisan. Like I've recognized that about, I'm like I'm not a partisan person at a fundamental level. I don't like to fight those kinds of fights. I'm very interested in facts and information and research. And I've been interested in that since the beginning of being a reporter. I think one of the things that I find fascinating about reading is the way that it kind of gets interestingly into some kind of confusing things politically um, that you just brought up. I think unfortunately there is uh, some of the most misinformed ideas about reading have been perpetuated by some people who call themselves liberal or progressive. Um, and I think that's unfortunate. I, I, I'm, I think that I think that people need to look at the evidence. I think what happens is that people have really strong beliefs in one direction, and it's really hard to get rid of your beliefs, especially if you've been teaching for many years based on those beliefs, or perhaps more dramatically, if you have built an academic career, or if you have developed a reading program based on ideas that turn out to be not true. 
Because the truth is, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't so clear how kids learn to read. I mean, we had the reading wards in a time before the science was really settled. I mean, research has been going on about reading for a long time, and there's really good research that psychologists have been doing, you know, starting back in the 1960s. But this was fought about in the 60s, 70s, early 80s, and I would say, and I think most of the reading scientists would agree, is that, you know, the jury was still kind of out, but it's not out anymore. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, it's been settled. It's settled science. Um, But unfortunately, I think it's hard for people to um, give up things that they've just come to believe and they think is true. And one of the really tricky things about teaching and learning, I think, is we cannot see inside people's brains when they're learning. And so teachers know a lot. I mean, teacher observation can tell us a lot about what is going on for kids, but it doesn't tell you everything. And kids can look like they're learning to read when they're in kindergarten, first and second grade. Teachers can think they're teaching kids how to read, but it turns out that they're not learning to read quite like you thought. And this has been documented. I mean, kids memorize books, they memorize words. This is one of the reasons a lot of kids really hit a wall in third and fourth grade, um, because they they hit a limit in terms of what they can memorize. The demands of reading get much um, higher. And frankly, um, what happens when kids get to like third and fourth grade is the amount of vocabulary and background knowledge you need to be able to understand what you're reading increases significantly too. So I talk about this in the documentary. I mean. This is not all about phonics. I mean, the, the debate that it's sort of phonics against something else is a false debate. The way that I've started to think about it is much more about what are the core beliefs at work in the approach to how you're teaching kids to read. And if the assumption is that it's basically natural, that it's mostly about exposure, that you can guide kids a little, that you can put them into groups and just give them books at their level and they will learn to read, those things do not, are not backed up by the science. The way that you explore the different reasons that teachers and educators do want to remain steadfast in in their beliefs, um, it's really fascinating. And specifically, it's not just ignorance, but it's also this idea that maybe reading is natural, but also that different kids are going to learn in different ways Mm -hmm. um, is sort of an assumption that you raise. I want to get to a little bit, I, I feel like you, in the piece, you also brought up issues of poverty, that somehow educators, especially if they're not feeling efficacious in the classroom, they want to sort of uh, claim that other factors outside their control are, are contributing to, for example, the reading gap or the achievement gap. Yeah. Um, you didn't go there necessarily with race, um, specifically that maybe educators, white educators in particular, might harbor some notions that that culture or race um, uh, has to do with this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you definitely say over and over again, or at least I read it so, that our brains, our mo- children's brains are mostly the same, and that instruction, therefore, in reading should be similar. Did you feel like um, you wanted to to um, continue the reporting in that way, or did you feel like um, that was sort of enough at that point? Uh, Particularly around this question of how different people learn? Right. Yeah. So I think this idea that people learn differently and that every child needs a different um, way of being taught and that we have different learning styles is another really hardcore belief that isn't backed up by the research. 
And I think it gets in the way. I mean, if you just think about the implications of that, that we need to teach every child differently, how can that be done, number one? And number two, we don't need to do it because the research shows that is not true. (laughs) We don't have different learning styles. There's no empirical evidence for it. And so it's not that every person is exactly the same. Absolutely not. Uh, there are definitely people learn at different rates. Um, there are a lot. There are lots of things that kids bring to school with them that impact their learning that come from other things going on in their lives. Poverty does have a big impact, and we can talk about the impact that it has in a moment. But I, I, I think this is one of the reasons people hold strong to the ways that they teach reading because I think this this kind of um, companion belief that every child learns differently is one of those things that kind of cements it together even harder and harder and we need to like break that apart no most kids brains are basically the same we all have to do basically the same things go through basically the same steps to turn our non-reading brains into reading brains some kids do it much more quickly than others some need much more help it's not i mean some may need much more emphasis on x y or z there might be some particular things you're doing in in reading instruction that work better for some kids than others because they need more of this or that but there's not like a fundamentally different way that children learn how to read and so there is a there are some things that teachers can learn about how reading works and the things that children need to go through and they can apply that to all kids i think there's another strong belief that gets in the way here too which is this idea that children should direct their own learning. Mm -hmm. And yes, absolutely, hands-on learning and doing projects is wonderful. I want to go into my own kid's classroom and see a lot of that being done. I want my kid to be creative and all of that. But direct instruction is really effective. There's been a huge amount of research that shows that a teacher directly teaching kids things, for example, with reading, about how the English language works and taking through the steps of how you translate, how you understand the relationships between sounds and letters. That can be directly taught and it's a very effective way to teach kids. So that's another reason I think people hold really strong to the beliefs they have about reading is because they, they, they just don't like the idea of direct instruction. But again, look at the research and look at the evidence. Direct instruction works. Yeah, and I think that your point also about one reason, one reason that, that teachers may not want direct instruction is maybe they don't know that there's an inner ignorance. And I know as a secondary educator, as well as all of my colleagues who, who teach middle school and high school, we all say that there was no class specifically on the teaching of reading that our elementary um, counterparts may have had at least a little bit, even if it was in Um, in a different approach than phonics. But for us, we can just sort of say that we just were never taught it. Um, Given that we have so many students at the ninth grade, for example, reading at third and fourth grade level, what do you think would be a good next step? Well, those are good questions. First of all, I don't, I don't think you should, I think if you talk to your colleagues in elementary, uh, a lot of them will tell you that they also were not taught how to teach kids to read. That's what mm-hmm. a lot of teachers tell me. So that's shocking. Um, I don't know very much about the best ways to teach struggling readers in middle and high school. That has not been a focus of my reporting. I know there is research that shows that it's never too late to be taught how to read. There's evidence that, that struggling readers can be taught at any age. However, it is also true that it's much better to intervene younger 
early intervention is much more effective than later intervention. Um, I also know that to become a good reader, you have to be able to decode words. Um, I talk about it in the documentary, The Simple View of Reading, that reading comprehension is your decoding skills times your vocabulary and your background knowledge. But if you have kids in ninth grade who struggle to decode words, and I bet you do, they need to be taught decoding. Now, whether or not that's something that, how that gets done, I don't know. And who does it, I don't know. I mean, there are some programs out there for older kids, and again, I don't know a lot about them. I, I've heard many people talk about the Wilson Reading Program. Um, Linda Mood Bell is another one that works with teens and I know works with adults. There's a book that someone recently recommended to me that I have not read yet, so I cannot personally endorse this, but I've read a little bit about it and it looks interesting. It's called um, Thinking, Reading, What Every Secondary Teacher Needs to Know About Reading. I think it just came out in paperback a few months ago. It might be something worth checking out. Uh, but I, I think it's a, I think it's a tough nut to crack. What do you do with a struggling reader in ninth grade? I think we need to answer that question. We need better answers. We need better ways to intervene. I also think it's not an immediate answer for people who teach secondary school. But I think it's a good idea for any teacher who is becoming aware of this problem to really look at what how kids are being taught at the elementary schools in your district, to ask questions, to talk to the teachers and to get involved with trying to make changes. Because think about how different your life as a teacher could be six or 10 years from now if those kids start getting really good reading instruction in kindergarten. I agree with you because by the time that students are in middle school and high school, reading tends to become more invisible and silent and done on on your own and even outside the classroom time, you know, for homework, um, even though there's a lot of fake reading that happens. Yeah. And it's interesting that, at least with my colleagues, there it is a, re a reticence to sort of have students read publicly in front of them or in front of the class because it's either inefficient or by that time students harbor a whole lot of a stigma if they're not reading fluently. But in your piece, obviously, with decoding, that means that students are not cracking the code and therefore um, need some additional support. And so I, I agree with you. I don't quite know what the next step should be because it seems so insurmountable, but it has to be done because in all of my years, um, I know the students who have confidence and who can read. They do so much better, not just in the classroom and not just going off to college, but even behaviorally in the classroom, I notice that as well. There's a, some really interesting research that I was going to say suggests, but I think the research pretty definitively shows at this point, you know, which comes first, you know, when it comes to behavior and, and academic problems in school, which comes first? Well, which comes first is pretty clearly academic problems. So there's some good research that's been done that shows that kids who struggle with reading early, kindergarten, first and second grades, I mean, that causes behavior problems, which then causes more problems when it comes to focusing in school and paying attention and learning. The sad thing about reading, and this is why it's so crucial and I've become very passionate about it, is it is, it's such a spiral. I mean, it's the way, it's the way that achievement gaps it, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an exponent. It, you know, it, this, what happens is that when kids, I think Louisa Motes explains this in the documentary. I mean, when kids get off to a good start in reading, then they're confident about it. They like it. Then they read more. They start to gain more vocabulary and background knowledge, which makes them like reading more, which makes them better at reading, which makes them want to read more. It's this whole virtuous cycle. 
If kids get off to a bad start, if they're struggling with the initial thing, which is learning how to decode words, if they get stuck there, then they're just stuck. Then they're not reading, they're not liking reading, they're not reading more. Once you have the basic skills to become a reader, it's true that more reading makes you a better reader. But it's not true that when you haven't learned how to read, <laughs> more reading and exposure to books makes you a better reader. What ha needs to happen kindergarten, first and second grade is those basic things about how you unlock the English language have to be taught explicitly and systematically and really well by the teachers. And then kids are off and going. And then all these other things that are so important to reading. Reading is not all about phonics. It's about all of these other things. But unless you get that phonics part down um, really early, those other things get stymied. Um, and so this is how achievement gaps grow <laughs> in our country. And they just, this is why the gulfs become so wide so fast. And there are gulfs even before kids get to school. I mean, this is true. The, the, these, these reading gaps do start before school. But if we were doing a better job of core reading instruction, we could be doing so much more to narrow those achievement gaps. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, Emily, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really, really appreciate it. It's gotten me thinking a whole lot, and I can't wait to share this with my colleagues. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate your questions. I think you're asking really important questions about what to do at the middle school and high school level. And I would really love for you to stay in touch with me and tell, tell me about the conversations that you guys have and the questions that come up. Yet again, I want to extend my deep appreciation to Emily Hanford for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. And Highlighter listeners, I'd love to hear your questions and also your thoughts about reading and reading instruction. You can send an email to mark at highlighter.cc or you can leave a voice me message at 415-886-7475. Let's keep these conversations going. I really value them and I really value that you are a loyal listener to this podcast as well as a loyal reader of the Highlighter newsletter, which of course you know will be coming out yet again this Thursday at 9, 10 a.m. Have a great week.